0: Hello, friends. We are back with episode 85 of the Art Weekly Highlights podcast. I hope you missed us. We were away for a little bit, but we're excited to be back here sharing another awesome uh, set of highlights for you from Art Weekly. My name is Eric Nance. And as always, I'm joined from my awesome and definitely busy co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how have you been? And you have a nice little break last week.
1: I did have a nice little break. Uh, we fortunately escaped the shackle that, that keeps us at the our weekly uh, blog desk for uh, a week which was really really nice and I got to spend a little bit extra extra family time, which was great and I know that you uh, soaked up some sun on the beach.
0: Sure did. went back to months on my old uh, stomping grounds, as they say up in Lake Michigan. It was a ton of fun. Had absolutely no internet access, so I was completely off the grid, which was, uh, you know, sometimes you need that little refresher a bit. Certainly, I was curious about the things I was missing, but it was good just to soak up some sun and let the kids get a lot of energy out on the beach and hopefully give me a chance to relax a little bit. So there was some relaxation to be had, and yeah, coming back, refresh. Although, as we were joking about in the pre-show, which may or may not ever be released in the future... I got a really uh, unpleasant surprise back with apps that are crashing and HPC systems that absolutely hate me right now. But we'll talk about that another day, of course, because we're here to talk about our Weekly. And we're actually going to be covering last week's issue, the makeup for the the little break we had. So this is going to be issue uh, issue 2022-W27, curated by Tony Elhabar. And as always, he had great help from our fellow R Weekly team members and contributors like you all around the world. In our first highlight, we're gonna recap a a bit about the recent USAR 2022 conference. It was held virtually a few weeks ago. And from all accounts, it sounds like it was a huge success with many great presentations and discussions. And one of those areas of discussion centered around the Shiny ecosystem, which is no stranger to things that Mike and I like to talk about. And one particular area in that ecosystem is starting to get a lot more attention. And a real pioneer in this space is Peter Salomos, an ecologist and technologist who led a very cool presentation detailing important best practices with encapsulating your Shiny applications into Docker containers. I've been a big fan of container tech for quite a bit now so this is obviously right up my wheelhouse but this is a new frontier to many of you out there that are maybe shiny developers and to be candid there are some of you that are listening who may never have to venture in a container territory maybe for instance you're working in an organization that is hosting shiny apps internally within your company's network via platforms like RStudio Connect then You have very easy ways to deploy your apps. But the world of DevOps is certainly merging in with places or worlds like data science workflows, where in the advent of container technology, combined with innovations in deploying containers as full-fledged services, has opened up some really big possibilities for the shiny app hosting space. And so Peter's blog posts First contains a link to his full presentation slides from the UseArt conference, as well as his feedback on questions he received about the ways container technology and best practices can help you host your Shiny app. He starts off with some fundamental recommendations, such as when you're developing your container, you need a starting point. That's what we call the base image. That's gonna be kind of the canvas that you build these layers on top of finding a robust base image of your container, and then defining your layers on top where you're installing some of these system dependencies, you're installing maybe something you need for your app that R needs or, or other things like that. Trying to structure that in such a way that if you make a couple revisions along the way, you're not going to cause a whole bunch of rework across layers that don't need to be recomputed. This is obviously a um, a concept that may sound pretty foreign if you haven't dived into container tech but there are some logical principles that are analogous to like building effective functional programming in r itself and now the logical question might be as you're listening to this is just what can where can you actually host one of these containerized shiny apps you've done your diligence you've got a nice Docker container where the heck can you put it well peter has extensive coverage throughout his site actually um, hosting data apps, on using different cloud services and other platforms that in essence are like a bring your own Docker container and we're going to give you a app as a service functionality for it. Things like DigitalOcean's one-click app deployment and also going all in on things like Kubernetes for high demand and high scalability of your container deployments. that Those are just a couple of possibilities as well as other container-first frameworks like Shiny Proxy as well. And I also saw some other great nuggets, one of which I'm gonna call out here is, these containers are Linux-based. Now, of course, I'm a huge fan of Linux, but there is one little reality of dealing with Linux and R that you're probably gonna encounter the hard way, like I have over the years is that some of these packages have system dependencies. Maybe it's a C library, maybe it's a a Node.js library. It's some other utility that is providing the backbone of that package. Now, when you install these packages on Windows and Mac OS, these packages are coming in binary format. So it's kind of bundled all that together for you. But on Linux, even if you install a binary version of a package, you still need that system dependency to make it fully work. You often learn this the hard way via some cryptic error message you might get when you do a library statement on that package. But Peter mentions a couple of great resources for finding and picking up system dependencies on Linux using things like RStudio's system requirements for R packages repository, as well as the RHub projects sysrexdb package and API databaseware. So you could see for a given package, what are the Linux dependencies that you're gonna need? Because that stuff's gonna to have to go in your Docker container, whether you like it or not. So having a um, awareness of that and being prospective about that is gonna smooth out your experience quite a bit. And then one last thing I'll mention is that these containers can have a lot inside. In fact, a lot of developers will put their full development environment libraries inside these containers that may not necessarily need to be there when you deploy to production. It's one thing to manually prune this yourself, but I'll give a quick plug to, um, they're not going to sponsor this podcast, but I'm going to plug them anyway. Um, Some of my friends at a promising startup called slim.ai, shout out to Martin Peter and... Alicia, um, we've, we've interacted before because I'm actually in some, you might say early stages of some pioneering of optimizing Shiny-based Docker containers with their open source Docker Slim tool, as well as their software as a service platform they're launching. I'm really excited about where we're going with it. As usual, we found things that they actually use to improve their tooling and I'm hoping I can extend that so I can share it with the broader community as we get more robust examples. But in container technology, things like security and the size of the containers can be an issue. And so, this the, the folks at Swim AI are going to be front and center and, and trying to spearhead you know optimization around that front end. Um, but the big picture here to me is that we have both the tooling and the resources to start bringing in these uh, state-of-the-art DevOps and application development frameworks within R, whether it's Shiny apps or even just reproducible analysis environments that you're going to use for maybe a research manuscript or another important analysis and beyond. So it's definitely early in terms of the mindshare to us in the Shiny space, but I think it's a great time to start investigating on this because you're going to get a lot of possibilities from it. So Mike, what did you think about uh, Peter's presentation and blog posts here? Well, I'm not sure there's
1: anything more that you and I love than Shiny plus Docker, that combination. Uh, I'm fortunate enough that Peter is a good friend of mine uh, who I've been lucky enough to, to work with alongside on a few projects. And he's an incredibly brilliant data scientist, especially when it comes to this intersection of Shiny and Docker. Also. Just side note, he's an all around really nice guy. So shout out to Peter and thanks for putting together this post uh, and great talk at the UseRConf. If you had to make me choose between Shiny or the concept of reproducibility, I don't think I could do it. Uh, But fortunately for us, we can build Shiny apps with Docker to ensure full reproducibility of our app and operating system and dependencies. I feel like Docker in the last few years has become that missing piece that uh, we really needed to ensure that our apps you know, were reproducible and, and hopefully don't break as often as they, they might otherwise. But <laughs> I had a bunch of cool takeaways from this blog, which is kind of structured like a QA and a based upon a bunch of questions Peter received after his presentation. And like you said, Eric, one thing I've always found kind of wonky in my Docker workflow is how I discover and install dependency libraries when I'm installing our packages in a Docker file, especially if you're using like geospatial packages, those are really known to have a a bunch of dependencies that you're going to need um, to install. And and like Peter, I typically rely on the error message (laughs) during my (laughs) Docker build to tell me what I'm missing. And then I add that additional library to my apt-get install line in my Docker file and sort of rinse and repeat until I don't get any errors anymore. I know you listed a couple of great resources uh, for improving that process. One other I wanted to call out was actually an R package called Docker Filer that has a function get underscore sysreqs, requirements to help do exactly that um, so that you don't have to keep rebuilding your failing image until you no longer have any errors for missing system dependencies and libraries. I am definitely going to use this in the future. I had never seen this before. So very glad that this post uh, was the first one on our list this week. Uh, If we had anything to say about it, it it definitely would have have been for sure. But uh, thanks, Tony, for passing this on to us. And I'm going to have to check out slim.ai because keeping the size of my Docker images down and as small as possible is always uh, another tricky sort of wonky process that I, I don't have a great workflow for. And if slim.ai can, can help out there, that would be awesome.
0: Yeah, we've had a lot of great discussions on this. And like I said, in our first attempts at this, we actually found some issues where it actually at first took away too much. And in my app actually wasn't working. So we're trying to figure out, why is that? What did it plug away? And then we found a way to kind of inspect what Shiny was expecting to see at a system level is like I was doing one of those hello world type examples, like the geyser plot or whatever. And it was, so it was nothing radical, but it's amazing. You take for granted all these little interdependencies at the lower level that Shiny and the web process that Shiny is spinning up is depending on. And so they're able to improve some of the mechanisms and use those principles in other languages too. Like Ruby on Rails applications, uh, Python's been a big focus for them as well, and so they're they're assembling all these use cases. And I have volunteered myself to help out with their ARA their are guidances, and they're really excited to to get that going because data science and machine learning, especially, has been a big focus in where they're trying to improve these sizes of containers because. We're seeing in those workflows these containers being spun up all the time in things like AWS's Container Service or many other providers. So the so again having these best practices in mind from you as a developer standpoint and knowing other tools in the community to aid you on that journey. Just like with R itself, you can never you should never expect to do everything yourself. But there are some fundamental things that if you can have some practice and gain the skills to optimizing these, you know, as, as best you can from the beginning, you're going to set your efforts for success. And like I said, the possibilities of where you can throw these containers, whether it's on your local server here in the basement, like I have here, or all the way up on that magical Kubernetes cluster that is spinning up who knows how many things at once. You You get your choice and choice is good here.
1: I'm I'm not sure if magical is the adjective. My go-to adjective uh, right before Kubernetes, but sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, there could be others. I know. <laughs> I've I've actually had adventures on that um, a few a couple of years ago. Um, I got really close, but you know what? Did me in the firewalls of where they were going to access that application. I had everything ready to go, but their company firewall blocked it. So, whoops. <laughs> that f word the firewall yeah so yes I'll that one it. yeah yeah i'll,
1: I'll keep it uh keep, i'll keep it pg for the podcast we
0: are days. a pg podcast you should have yes. heard the pre-show though but anyway yes <laughs> <laughs> moving right along moving right along yeah shall we well our our next highlight brings back many memories of my first foray into advanced computing as I was getting to know R and other frameworks. And yes, much of the talk these days is on things like web apps, sophisticated apps, all wrapped tightly in JavaScript and other languages, all the pretty things you can do. And yeah, nothing wrong with that. Heck, we built shiny apps that look good. We have no, there's no shame there. But in my daily work, I'm also always going lower level. And when I say lower level, every single day, whether for the work stuff or frankly, for my geeky stuff at home, I'm in some form of a Linux shell because I can accomplish a whole lot of things in there. And it's also necessary to debug, let's say, cryptic HPC errors that I have no idea what's going on. Again, you didn't hear anything here. Um, but yes, I think you can accomplish a lot of efficiencies with just a little know-how and getting around in a terminal and in particular, the various shells that you can execute to bring a lot more efficiencies, just waiting for your command, so to speak. And so indeed, when you look at an IDE like our Studio or even Visual Studio Code, You've got one of those fancy terminals waiting right for you if you want to take advantage of it. Also, when you get into the realms of data science and statistics, there are many kind of domain, applied domains in these areas where mastery or at least, you know, solid skill set in shell-based and terminal-based programming is a huge asset. Like in bioinformatics, I had an early part of my career where I was, analyzing pretty complicated genetic data sets and we had to get to the shell to even get the data in a usable state so that I could turn Moose of R on it. If you find yourself in that situation or you're just curious and wanna get more effective with shell programming, well, our next highlight is a blog post from Elizabeth Brooks, a PhD candidate, and it was written this amazing guide on how various concepts in shell-based programming relate to a lot of the things you are already doing as an R user. This is something I wish I had had about 10 years ago, but hey, you can't turn back time, better late than never. Um, There's a lot of information here, so I can't unpack all of it in this highlight here, but at a high level, what Elizabeth has done here is provide this terrific mapping between common R commands and shell commands in the popular ZSH and bash shells, two of the most common shells you'll find in in basically Linux and terminal programming. I do want to give a special shout out to the fish shell. I use that every day, and that's super awesome. But you know, there's choice in everything in open source. Any
1: association to the band fish?
0: I bet you can make a macro to do it. I wouldn't be surprised if someone had. <laughs> um, that's, I actually learned about that fish shell from the aforementioned Martin from Slim AI. So thank you, Martin, for getting me hooked on fish. But anyway, what Elizabeth work ties in is practical operations like creating and displaying variables. There are some little intricacies of doing that in a shell-based script or defining control structures and loops, basic arithmetic, and neat ways of printing maybe a subset or an index portion of an array or other type of vector. I believe I know enough to be dangerous, so to speak, when I do these kind of one-off or sophisticated piped commands in a terminal. I mean, how many times have I tried to count the number of lines in a text file with the the old school pipe operator? You (laughs) You can't get away from that. I always remind people. The, the R community didn't invent the pipe, the Linux community invented the pipe. <laughs> but, but also what I think the resources here in this post are gonna help me become a more effective shell script developer. When I say shell script, these are analogous to what you would write as an R script that contains all your function calls and variable derivations, dataset importing. I have built a few of these to hack around some fun projects at home. But sometimes I always felt like I didn't really know what I was doing or I was looking at maybe somebody way smarter than me doing this copying from there, but not quite getting to like, why do I put that dollar sign in front of that variable name? Or why do I need that like misspelled end of case in a bash script? Like it it didn't make sense to me, but Elizabeth really does a great job of like connecting those dots, at least to someone like me. So Admittedly, if you're new to this kind of concept of shell and terminal based kind of commands, not a lot of this may make sense at first. And I know it didn't for me when I first started this years ago. But I think with some practice, you'd be surprised at the wins you can achieve with a mastery of shells like ZSH and Bash and Fish and whatever shell you want to throw at it. So I'm always in the shell. Mike, are you always in the shell too? Or are you just uh, more comfortable in the art itself?
1: It's a tough one. I've gotten more comfortable in the shell, but I'll admit that I'm not sure there's anything more intimidating than the command line when you haven't had much experience with it before. It's just like this, this blinking cursor uh, in front of you and everything seems to be an error when you're starting. Out. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Nothing works. But um, it's so many CD commands. Uh, it's, it's crazy powerful and I'm always amazed at some of the command line utilities that exist that would probably take lots of lines of R or Python code to reproduce uh, the output. So there's some pretty nifty nifty tools in there. There's also a fantastic book for anyone in data science looking to get more familiar after reading Elizabeth's post with the command line, um, wonderfully titled Data Science at the Command Line by Jeroen Janssens. I've picked up that book more times than I'd like to admit, and it's gotten me out of a lot of tight spots. And the unfortunate reality is if you ever want your model or some process to get off your own laptop and into production, you're going to have to interface with the command line. And of course, like everything else in tech and or data science, uh, the terminology is confusing here as well. There's about a hundred names for the command line, like bash, shell, terminal, apparently fish had no idea. Um, but Elizabeth really helps to demystify all of this in her fantastic blog post that we have here. I don't think this topic gets enough coverage, as you know. I think traditionally there's been a pretty big separation, like you started out discussing, Eric, between IT folks using the command line and everyday analysts who had no need to touch it. Um, but with the tools that we now have as data scientists in the open source, these worlds have for sure collided for us. So. Any little bit, I think the command line especially is just one of those things where you'll, you'll always be learning or at least or at least I'll always be learning uh, more about the command line. I'll, I don't think anytime soon I'll feel like I'm finished learning about everything the command line has to offer.
0: Yeah, there's no way I can finish everything, but I, I, I definitely appreciate it because when you debug some really gnarly issues where you're interfacing like hops to these different servers where, You're not going to be able to spin up that fancy RStudio IDE on that particular server. It's got just a blank prompt waiting for you to tell it what to do. So that you can guarantee will always be there. So it gives you that sense of security that one way or another, you're going to be able to program your way out of a gnarly issue, hopefully. And sometimes getting to the shell to do it is necessary, but this is all fresh in my mind because I've already been living in it the past 48
1: hours. <laughs> I was going to say, you have some very specific examples
0: there. Well, do that's I right. ever? Yeah. <laughs> if we ever get funding for this podcast, maybe we'll release it as a bonus. But yes. It,
1: it was... <laughs> Did you have to beg anyone for root access?
0: That was many years ago. Um, okay. Yes. Yes. And, I'm glad um, you got over that hurdle. Got over that hurdle. Yes. And then they took it away. But that's another story because I was <laughs> naughty. No no I was not naughty. I'm a nice data scientist at the command line folks. I have friends to back me up. So we're all we're all friends here. But yes, I I think there is having that direct connection and knowing your way around it, even if you're just comfortable just navigating directories and quickly viewing a text file just that alone can save you probably eons of time instead of like trying to transfer transfer a file directly back on your system when your network connection spotty as heck so there's 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 opportunities for everything so start where you need and then just expand from there that's always my model couldn't agree more couldn't agree more so we're going to round out today's highlights with um more of a practical look at the world of open-source and particular development of open-source. Of course, one of the biggest strengths of the R ecosystem is the community of packages and the diversity of who is making these packages, all their infrastructure, their development practices, you see everything across the board. And sure enough, I've used many packages in the past where There may be I run into a corner case that the developer hasn't thought of. And I never expect a developer to solve everything for me. I'm just happy that they made it. So it makes my life a lot easier. But I do want to give back. And what are some great ways of giving back? Well, of course, we talked about things like reproducible examples and the like. But as you're starting to evaluate what is out there and evaluating kind of what is the what is like the, the cadence of development? That's where our last highlight, another terrific blog post from former R-Wiki curator, Mael Salmon has authored here on the r Side blog for evaluating GitHub activity for contributors. So from the perspective of somebody who's looking to give back, what are some of the techniques or practical things you can look for? So there are some pretty important ones to start with that can maybe save you some time, like seeing if that repository is actually still active because there are some repositories out there that are called archived. So that means development has completely stopped. They're still putting it out there, but there ain't gonna be any updates on it. So you gotta keep that in mind if you're picking something like that for your next project. But then tools that GitHub can give you such as specific um, parameter settings in their UI to flag a repository to watch more closely for activity. Maybe issue updates, source code updates via pull requests. You can opt into seeing as much activity as as you'd like to see, which is always fascinating to me to kind of see the different cadences of development, the different time spurts involved, I'll admit on air, maybe I'll regret this, but I tend to watch a lot of the Studio repos because I'm so fascinated by some of their development, especially what we talked about recently with the Quartal engine. There's been a flurry of activity on that one. That's been supremely fascinating to watch. So GitHub makes it super easy to watch things like that. And then also looking at other kind of meta issues, such as, how they do their issue tracking? How do they prioritize issues? Are they using project boards? Like what are some things they're doing from a code activity standpoint? There are lots of things that developing in the open can give you a lens to. It's just up to you to, to kind of look into it. Um, and then my concludes with also looking at things like who are the main authors? What's their activity level? Maybe looking at other projects they're working on, you can you can learn a lot just by seeing what a one of your favorite developers is up to. I mean, gosh, I've I've looked at a whole bunch of things that the RStudio folks have developed, as well as some of the folks like um, those in in charge of the Rocker project with R-based Docker containers, kind of seeing what they're up to. So there's so much diversity in that, but you often Might see a nugget that doesn't get a lot of attention, and you see they're working on something that's been kind of more on the down low, but you might be able to use that for your project, then maybe give back if you find it useful. So these are lots of great tips here. Um, Check out the blog post for much more, but I think it's great. It's a great set of criteria as you're beginning to maybe pick a project that you want to incorporate into your main workflow, and also ways that you can kind of assess if you give back what that relationship might look like. So awesome blog post as usual, Mal. Uh, Mike, what did you think about this?
1: I like coming back to this topic every once in a while because it reminds me that there is this disconnect between the number of uh, folks who develop these packages for us and, and the number of users is like orders of magnitude, right? More than <clears throat> the number of people who develop and maintain these packages. Right. So. Um, this leads to, to that disconnect from reality where, where half the world can be relying on something that you built in your free time. And now you suddenly have to maintain something that has become way bigger than you initially anticipated, you know, and with increased number of users comes an increased number of edge case bugs that you may be faced with. So I really love the R side blog posts, and especially those that come from Mel, um, this is on one of my favorite topics, and mostly because I feel like I always learn more about this whenever I see one of these blog posts around how to be helpful and not on GitHub, which is a little tricky. Oh, shoot! Okay, we're this episode's PG thirteen. We're gonna need the explicit tag, but. You know, th- this is a topic that we have covered a few times on the podcast. And open source software is amazing, but it's often thankless, and even more often than that, it's unpaid. So, being respectful and using your resources to see if this package that you are potentially going to depend your project on is being maintained, if you have opportunities to contribute to it, um, even if it's just contributing to the documentation, that goes such a long way. So. A really great step-by-step from Mael on how to start getting your hands dirty and contributing to these packages and understanding, um, you know, where they are at in their life cycle.
0: Yep. And there's, like I said, there's a whole bunch of variation out there and no one model is, is right. I mean, but I think you can, one other takeaway I've had is that I've gleaned some of these principles that, you know, major organizations or even just, you know, solo developers out there are using to manage their, their code, managing the issues around that. And I've been able to bring that into my development best practices. So it's, it's amazing what you can learn just by seeing how others do it. And then even better is when you get a dialogue with them and you kind of understand what was in their mindset, but this is all, this is all readily available and, our OpenSci in particular has always been one of the the leaders in helping others get into contributing to open source of their ecosystem and giving them great guidances to prepare them for that. So it's always I've, I've come to rely on a lot of their guidances already. And so this is no exception to that. So excellent. As always, we have that highlight as well as all the other highlights in the show notes of this. Episode. And before we wrap up here, we'll talk about some other, you know, little nuggets here and there that we, we saw in this issue. I want to give a great shout out to um Jesse Mostapak, who had a wonderful guest post on the Data Science by Design blog on her journey of live streaming her coding adventures to the entire world. Um, and I've mentioned maybe in other episodes of this or in my shiny dev series live streams but people like Jesse and Tan and Daniel and 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 many others have been inspirations for me to when I had more time to do my development work in the open and sharing my process of solving things in real time and not being afraid to fail but just using it as a learning opportunity and showing that, Nobody has to be perfect to be a great contributor, but Jesse was certainly one of those that totally inspired me. So read that if you're ever interested in kind of seeing what benefit you might get out of following a similar journey. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great, great call out and great. Uh, awesome to see Jesse continue to learn out in the open for us and do all that nice live streaming that we love. Um, a couple shout outs that i'll uh, say here one was on i'll go back to shiny our shiny caching blog post by absalon on the top three ways to cache interactive elements in shiny Uh, always a very useful sort of last step that sometimes i forget to do in my shiny apps but try to try to make that performance just a little tiny bit better than it might have been otherwise by caching some elements and it can be super powerful depending on the size of your data and the, and the size of those plots that you're, you're creating within your Shiny app. Also, there was some suspect uh, data scientist who wrote a blog post called Shiny and Arrow that made its way on the RStudio blog last week. I would, I would take everything in there with a grain of salt, uh, for sure. But if you are a Shiny dev who is looking to improve the speed and processing of your app, Arrow might be a great place to look. Uh, it's been a great great resource for me it's really changed the game and a lot of the work that i do
0: yes and, and mike as always is a humble mike here but the big congratulations on that post I, I i was so eager to see that when it came out so you must if you're involved at all with trying to eke out some more performance out of large data and shiny you out there need to read Mike's post so that will be linked of course in the in the show notes and congratulations again and I hope we we see more blog posts from you on this topic in the future
1: Thank you thank you you know how it, it takes time that's why I have so much respect for everybody that does submit a blog post every week because it takes it takes a whole lot of time to put a blog post together but it's uh, it's fun when it comes together
0: absolutely what else is fun of course our back catalog if you want to listen to previous. Episodes of our Re- our weekly highlights, and kind of see where things are. Well, the best place to go is ourweekly.org. We have a link to the podcast right at the top, and we're also making some infrastructure improvements. Um, some big events are happening. We're going to be able to talk more about that soon, but things are slowly on the mend, and we got some big plans on the curation team to. Revive some of our processes, and yes, there probably will be R and Shiny involved. So, you know, we're gonna have fun with that. We got some really smart people behind that one. <laughs> I'm gonna be just along for the ride. We got some really talented folks who are gonna be spearheading that one. So, hopefully, you can share with that soon. And we welcome your feedback as always. Um, But Mike, speaking of feedback, if our listeners want to give you a big pat on the proverbial back and congratulations on your post, where can they find you online?
1: Don't need to do that, but I am on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K.
0: Great. I am at the R-Cast and lots of things are about to happen in a couple of weeks. I'm, I'm head down getting all that prepared, but I will definitely be shouting out a few things. Before and definitely during our Studio Conf, which is yeah, less than two weeks away as we record this. So yep, lots of things happening. But that will do it for us for episode eighty five of the RB Highlights podcast. And we'll we'll be back with another edition, likely very soon.